0: Hi, this is Desmond Child, and you're listening to My Weekly Mixtape with Brian Colburn.
1: Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Tonight, I'm beyond excited to welcome one of my favorite songwriters on the planet to the program, a man responsible for so many of the great tunes that have lived on my personal mixtapes over the years. It's almost staggering. And that is the one and only Desmond Child. Desmond, thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is great. Well, I'd like to start by asking you the question I ask all of my first time guests And that is, what does the word mixtape mean to you?
0: Well, mixtape is sort of a modern idea that comes from DJs kind of going from one song to the other. Sometimes they have the same tempo, so they mix them together as they transition from one to the other. So then it became this thing of the collection of your favorite songs. That's how that came about.
1: Well, you recently released a new memoir entitled Living on a Prayer Big Songs, Big Life, which I'm sure is going to be coming up a lot through our conversation tonight. So, without further ado, let's just start diving into some of those big songs. The first song I'd like to talk about is House of Fire, a song you wrote with Alice Cooper and Joan Jett for Alice's 1989 album Trash. However, In 2014, it surfaced as a bonus track on Bon Jovi's Deluxe Edition of New Jersey. When you're writing songs, do you write with an artist in mind? Or is this an example of House of Fire is a Desmond Child song first and foremost, but let's see where it fits with a few artists before the decision is made? Because to me, both versions of this song are amazing. And I think that speaks volume to the strength of the song in the first place. Are they identical lyric-wise and everything? The main verses and choruses are identical, yes, but there are some different nuances throughout the song and a little bridge in the middle that is different in the Bon Jovi version.
0: I need to check that out. This is how the song began. I was co-writing with Joan Jett, and I had the title House of Fire, you know, and it just seemed like so Joan Jett to me. And then we started working on it, but in the end, she says, I don't think this is for me. And so, you know, it was like, House of Fire, House of Fire. You know, it's like, it seems like right in the same wheelhouse of, I love rock and roll. or yeah. I hate myself for loving you, right? It's just that kind of droney, kind of girl gang, kind of vocal, right? And so, he wasn't taken to it. And so, then I think I played it for John and Richie. And they were like, no, nah, I mean, you know, it's like Joan Jett, I mean, already has like, you know, another writer on it and she's a girl and uh, kind of thing. And it's like, no, but you're not understanding. Joan Jett is not just a girl, you know, like she's like, <laughs> like an amaz- amazing, like boy girl. Right. And so then, you know, I just dropped it and then I brought it to Alice Cooper. and He loved it because, you know, it has that Helen Brimstone kind of thing. Mm -hmm. House of Fire. It's it's like a world Alice Cooper would live in. So, because I had started with Joan, I brought in Alice and we finished the song. I had no idea that John and Richie kind of didn't let it go. It is a demo version on the deluxe two CD edition of New Jersey. Yeah. I don't know know, how it is. And they worked on Trash, but they, they didn't hear the other songs. So, they didn't know that I was still developing House of Fire, so it's one of those kind of faux pas, and really, it's they should have grabbed it from the beginning. Because when I played John, I hate myself for loving you. He just listened to the song and he just said, "Fuck you," and he like walked away from me. (laughs) And I I, I think he liked it. Yeah, say so. He said, "Why'd you write that with her?" And I said, "Well, I I co wrote it with her. You know, it's like we." the day one that I that I met her. It's like, ah, yeah. You and like you just walked away. (laughs) Because, you know, it would would have been like so perfect for him, right? For Bon Jovi. Uh, you know, it has that kind of bratty thing, right? Definitely, Um, yeah. And so somehow, you know, I'm sort of the uh virus that keeps infecting everybody with these hooks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well while we're on the topic of Alice Cooper, trash was Kind of a comeback album for Alice, even though at the time I was young enough, as were a lot of people my age. To have that album be my introduction to Alice Cooper, which I have to add my father took full advantage of because as soon as I told my dad that I was a fan of this quote unquote new artist Alice Cooper, he took me on a journey back through his older albums. But this echoes a similar situation for you with Aerosmith and their 1987 album Permanent Vacation, which for them was a comeback album. Was this a common situation you found yourself in through the 80s? Or is this comeback album, Desmond Child Connection, more happenstance?
0: Well, I think what happened was, you know, I had my first big hit with a rock band with Kiss, Mm -hmm. uh, which I I collaborated with Paul Stanley. And we wrote, I was made for loving you. And so that was such a huge global success that then, you know, bands were like, well, the A&R guys like John Clodner, were kind of saying, oh, uh, you know, and oh, then then Jovi met me through Paul Stanley, so that's the connection there. And then we had instant success with You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. And so then John Clodner called me because he wanted me to co-write with Steven Tyler and Joe Perry for their next record. They had done a record called Dunwick Mirrors, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a commercial success. And so, it seemed like I was the golden boy of the hour. So, they thought, well, this is a great guy that you can put in a room and he'll collaborate with the artist and they come up with something good. So, that's how that started. And, you know, uh, with Aerosmith, it was, you know, very reluctantly agreed for me to come and try to work with them. And the first day we got together, we wrote, dude looks like a lady. So, I'm sort of good on a first date. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, then it then it gets complicated. I, I was
1: going to say, how do you establish that rapport with an artist? Because songwriting is something that is, at least for me, something that you have to be very open and very vulnerable in to kind of dive into where the song is going to take you lyrically. How do you instantly establish this rapport with these artists?
0: Well, you said two different things. One is how do I establish the rapport? But you also said, You have to be vulnerable. Not with these people. There's no vulnerable. There's no vulnerable with stadium, like, hetero rock bands. That's the opposite of what they want to be, vulnerable. (laughs) I mean, the, the kiss way is, you know, the protagonist, who, you know, is either Gene or Paul, they always have to be the winners, the victors. They can never be the victim of whatever they're singing about. So that kind of, we're going to make it. uh, You know, we are the champions. That kind of feeling is all through their music, and that's why you know young adolescent boys love them because it gave them a kind of a superpower. You know, this kind of rock music, you know, and the sound of the guitars being so electric and all that kind of stuff. And so the vulnerable parts, you know, that's more like you know, when you're writing ballads, I guess. I mean, I guess that applied to the song Angel, you know, which was the second song I wrote with Steven Tyler. Joe didn't come to the session. It was the next day after we wrote Dude Looks Like a lady. And, um, you know, we sat, in, you know, by ourselves in this big warehouse where they were rehearsing. And I said, well, tell me what's going on with you. What what have you been going through and all this kind of stuff? And he's a kind of over-sharer. And so he started telling me about his struggles, you know, with substance abuse and how he had gotten himself clean and sober and that he had met this wonderful woman, Teresa, who he married, and that she was his angel. And so he likes things, you know, I'm alone and I don't know if I can face the night. You know, that's kind of vulnerability. Yeah, that's where I was going. And so, you know, we wrote the song and it was a hit as well. But it was never one of Steven's favorite songs. And they, they were very reluctant to perform it because they felt it was too pop for their audience, for their brand. Even though, you know, later on, you know, we wrote Crazy and we wrote What It Takes. Those songs were tougher sounding. And so there's always that. I had gotten together with John Majovi and Richie Sambora for the New Jersey album after we had all that success with Slippery When Wet. And we wrote a bunch of songs, as we, one does, and then they picked the ones that fit the best. There was a song we wrote called We All Sleep Alone that was for that record. And you know, John said, you know what? This is too moody, too sensitive, too slow. This, this is like a chick song. And I was working with Cher. And I said, "Oh well, do you mind if I play this for Cher? And she loved it and it fit her persona perfectly because she was like tabloid queen. So you saw her jumping in and out of relationships. So she, you know, the song has this ominous feeling and it, you know, it says, sooner or later, we all sleep alone, meaning in the ground. Yeah. So it's like a song about loneliness and about you have to, you gotta be strong when you're out on your own, you know. (laughs) So no, later we all sleep alone, right? (laughs) That wasn't my best Cher imitation, but the the sound of the words fit her tone like perfectly, and she made a gorgeous video of that song. And uh, John and Richie co-produced that with me, I think, for Cher. I think they played on it. The band by Jovi played on in John and Richie were the co-producers. And we also got a second song, which was my obsession with a song called Bang Bang. Bang, bang, he shot me down, bang, bang. You know, my baby shot me down. And so we reimagined it as this heavy rock song, like... <laughs> And you know, I was five and he was six, laid on horses made of sticks. But the original song was only like two minutes long. So I realized the song only had one verse. So I drove down to Palm Springs and met with Sadi who had written the song originally and solely wrote it. And I asked him to write a second verse and he agreed to do it. And I just huh. sat in the room while he came up with it. You know, and then I took the lyrics with me and we went and we cut it. How cool is that? That's amazing. And so, you know, last night, I'm in Palm Springs right now on vacation. And I was walking down the street and I saw, like, the Walk of Fame and there was a star. You know, they have stars on the Walk of Fame. And I, like, stumbled upon Sonny Bono's star. It was like, wow. You know, and then there was, like, a space and then came another star. So, there's, like, enough space me to have my star. And so, I'm going to find out about it, you know, <laughs> because I want to be next to Sonny Bono. You know, it reminds me of uh, when Hugh Hefner, when Marilyn Monroe died, uh, they put her in this uh, mausoleum, right, at the edge of Brentwood, you know, over there in, uh, in Santa Monica. I forget the name of it, Four Slot or something. And he bought the niche on top of hers because he said, that's where I want to be Buried because people throughout time will always go and pay their respects at the tomb of Marilyn Monroe. They're not going to do that for me, but they'll see that I'm there on top of her. This is I want to say, that, you know, that like I'm on top of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so I think that's where they buried him. <laughs> they might have, he might have changed the scheme, but he, I know that story. So I want my star to be next to Sonny Bono's. How's that? All right.
1: Well, while we were just talking about John and Richie, obviously you talked about the songs you wrote with them for Slippery When Wet and New Jersey. I want to actually talk about two songs that are two of my favorites that are on later albums that I've always told people I feel don't get as much love as the songs from Slippery and New Jersey. And the first one being the title track to 1992's Keep the Faith, which introduced almost a new musical dynamic with the band in this almost gospel-esque type sound. And I would love to know how that flavor came through in that track and how it was decided to kind of bring that to Bon Jovi, because that was kind of a new sound for them.
0: Well, I had moved to Miami and sort of got involved with Latin music uh, because I'm Cuban. So I came home to Miami Beach where I had gone to high school and everything. And I was going to the salsa clubs and learning how to dance salsa and everything. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it was around the time that I met Ricky Martin and had like huge hit, "Living La Vida Loca" and The Cup of Life. And so, for that album, you know, I met with John and Richie and Richie was still with Heather Locklear and they lived in Thousand Oaks or something and this gorgeous house up on this hilltop. I mean, it was like a movie set. Everything was beige, you know, like very chic. And John said, you know, I love that Vita Loca, like, let's write something that has a beat like that. And so I think that's how it kind of developed, not so much gospel, but it ended up being that way, because I think they did add a kind of gospel feeling to it. And also, Tico's Cuban as well, I'm I'm half Cuban, so there's that Cuban connection, that Latin beat is kind of going through it. So, that's how that song came about. But remember, 1992, bands like Bon Jovi and Aerosmith and Kiss and you know everybody else I wrote, worked with could not get through to get their songs played on MTV or their videos and, and VH1. So, it was harder to promote a single. Then you had to just do it just based on the fans that you had and, you know, a terrestrial radio. But then at that time, radio was already, you know, splitting off rock stations, heavy rock stations, Americana, Heartland, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, alternative, goth, heavy metal. I mean, there was a station for every kind of sound. When I was growing up in the ghettos of Miami and Liberty City, And it was a mixed race neighborhood, people with, you know, white, Latino, African American. You know, we all played together in the swing sets, and somebody always had a transistor radio. There was one station to listen to. So you'd hear Aretha Franklin come on, and then you'd hear the Beatles, and then you'd hear Dionne Warwick, and then you'd hear, you know, the Monkees. Every song was a different style. So you learn to appreciate every song in different styles. But when they figured out they can have thousands of stations and really target markets and all of that, it was part of the dumbing of America, I think. It was this whole like idea of like if somebody likes something, then they should just like that and nothing else. Oh, I like every flavor imaginable when it comes to music. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said music. <laughs>
1: Well, the other track I want to bring up is from 1995's These Days album, and it's my favorite song on that album that incorporated an electric sitar for the lead, and that's Something for the Pain, which I thought was a very unique thing to bring to Bon Jovi. And I was curious if that was a Richie decision or what to have the sitar kind of be the lead instrument because it really gave the song a unique flair and it really stood out because of that.
0: Well, I've never been a producer on Bon Jovi's tracks. I'm just the co writer and then okay. I beat and then they do whatever they're going to do. And we were very, very, very lucky that for Slippery and for New Jersey, they had the brilliant Bruce Fairbairn. Mm-hmm. with his yeah. engineer, Bob Rock. And so, then he passed away and Aerosmith was using the same combination. So, the bands were one band coming in one door and the other band going out the other door. It was kind of like that. And so, we were very lucky and then all these different things happened and you know these different producers were brought in to work with both bands. And those producers might have had an influence in how that particular song came out. You know, John and Richie were always big fans of the Beatles. And so, you know, they had gone through their Indian phase, you know, uh, the Beatles hat. You know, they went to India. And so that kind of wove its way into their music. So maybe it was a kind of a tribute kind of element to the Beatles.
1: I want to touch on that when you're talking about the Beatles, because there's something that when I was 10 years old, listening to these songs on my cassette tapes growing up, I noticed something through three of the songs that you happen to write that as I got older, started looking back and saying that might be a nod to the Beatles. And this is something now I've wondered for 35 years, Bon Jovi's living on a prayer, Alice Cooper's house of fire, which we talked about earlier and Joan Jett's little liar, all three songs towards the end use a key change in the chorus to kind of reintroduce the song and bring you back in at the end. And that's something the Beatles did in the early days. How do you decide when a key change is important to bring to a song versus not necessary?
0: Mm. It, it just all, it all is different. I never had Beatles in mind when I suggest um, key changes, especially the most effective one was living out a prayer. Yeah. Because when they did the first demo, you know, they did the key change, but there was a drum fill for like a full measure before the key change came in. And I suggest that they drop a beat. Live for the fight when that's all that we got, oh. Then the O oh is on one after a bar of three. Yes. So, all that you got, oh. As opposed to live for the fight and that all that you got. One, two, three, four, oh. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I thought that sounded corny. But the sudden surprise of the key change is what makes that song. But also, John has cursed me, you know, like mercilessly <laughs> for suggesting the key change. <laughs> you know, because it put the song in the stratosphere, key-wise, you know. And, uh, you know, in those days, then no problem. But, you know, as one matures and becomes more badly, your voice starts to drop a little bit. <laughs> so, um you know, that's the thing. I think that because of how I grew up and because I always loved pop music and, you know, the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys and things like that, to me, you know, key change has always added like a new, after you've heard the chorus twice, to bring the key change in on the the last chorus brought a new color, you know, to it. And I never liked um, half-step key changes. Like I like full whole step key changes. Now, I think with living on prayer was even more so. I think it was a minor third up and it was like, wow, you know, the song just exploded. You know, so, I believe in key changes. But you can't do it, you know, gratuitously. Right. It has to earn its keep. It has to be worth it. Or it can be like, you know, oh, this song really isn't strong enough to stand on its own, then throw the key change in there. So, at least you get a, another shot at somebody like ear picking up and listening to that chorus because, you know, to have a hit, it's repeated listening. Mm-hmm. That's why I preferred the battle days of Payola, because they could buy, a, you know, the record labels could buy into, you know, a program director and wide and dine them and you know, give them Coke and hookers and you know <laughs> every you know, private planes and all this kind of stuff to get repeated listening. But then the suits and the bean counters took control and they wanted what they call like polling or, or whatever. They they started to play a song in Iowa at three o'clock in the morning. And if one phone lit up, then the band wouldn't be dropped. <laughs> you know, it's like a song has to be listened to several times. Sometimes you go, you know, I really don't like that song. And then all of a sudden, after you hear it a few times, then it sinks in and then you like it. You know, I was like that with Careless Whisper. You know, when I heard that song, maybe I was just pure jealous, right? (laughs) And uh, there's this gorgeous George Michael, you know, and there was that like, guilty feet, they got no rhythm. Mm -hmm. And... I just thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Guilty feet. Stinky feet. I don't know. It just <laughs> rubbed me the wrong way. And now it's like my favorite song in the world. I mean, I just love it so much. And I totally it I don't even think about it. It's just part of my the fabric of my being. Because, you know, I've heard it so many times. You make up your own kind of narrative to the songs you listen to. I once had a guy come up to me, you know, and he said, You wrote that song with Aerosmith called Do a Naked Lady. (laughs) That's how he heard it. (laughs) Instead of of dude looks like a lady, he heard it as Do a Naked Lady. And I said, yup. (laughs) That's it. That's exactly what I wrote. (laughs) Why, Why destroy his world? You know? yeah. but the
1: song was originally, if I'm not mistaken, I've seen you talk about the fact that the song was originally called "Cruising for the Ladies. I don't know if that would have had the same impact.
0: Well, I mean, I hadn't even said hello to them. I was I was led into the big warehouse where they were rehearsing. And Steven said, you know, come with me, come with me. And uh, I didn't say, hi, I'm Desmond. No, nothing. It said, come with me, come with me. And, uh, on the side of the state, the, the monitor guy was there and they had recorded a guitar lick backwards. Uh, I mean, they were playing it backwards and you, you know, na-da, na-da, which kind of reminded me of ZZ Top kind of thing. Yep. And so that you said, he started singing, cruising for the latest like, you know, and then they stopped and they said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, that's really bad. And they were like in shock and Joe was like crossing his arms, you know, like looking at me sideways, you know, like this, you know. And then Steven who's, you know, like I said, people pleaser, uh, he said, well, originally I was singing dude looks like a lady, I said stop right there, that's a hit title. And Joe said, but we don't know what that means. And I said, well, I know what that means. Uh, He said, well, we don't want to insult the gay community. I said I'm gay. You're not insulting nobody. That's fun. <laughs> and you know that song has, uh, has has endured the test of time and has a great lesson to tell, which is never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. Because, you know, hey, if it looks good to you, go for it. Or if you have a feeling, go for it. Well, that's a top 3 Aerosmith song for me. I've always loved that one. Well, you know, I loved it because, you know, it sort of brought them back big time and they made the funnest video. And when Steven was singing, dude looks like a lady, you thought he was singing about himself because of the big lips and, you know, eyeliner and the painted nails and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, dude looks like a lady. It's like It was like saying, almost like, I'm a dude and I look like a lady. And, you know, he looks like a lady now. You know, like, he always has this androgynous look. He's never lost that. That's what was cool about the 70s when I was coming up and listening to David Bowie and Mick Jagger and hearing all kinds of stories about, you know, all these, uh, you know, kind of non-binary relationships and things that were going on. I said, that's what it means to be a rock star. Well, I want to be that, you know. So, that's why, I mean... I mean, I, got, I had gone to so many drag shows, you know, growing up, you know, because that's where you went to a bar and there always would be a drag show. So, that's how, you know, we came up with this idea. But actually, it stemmed from a true story because I asked him, how would you come up with Do Looks Like a Lady? And he said, well, we went to this bar on the shore and me and my guys, uh, you know, the roadies and stuff. And it was like almost empty, except their long, lonely bar. And at the end was this kind of vision of loveliness—this like a bouffant platinum mullet with like porcelain skin, black nails, and jewelry, and curvy figure, you know, voluptuous. And uh, they were like drawing straws—who was going to go and say hello, right? Hit on her, right? So all of a sudden, she turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley (laughs) Crue. And so that's when Steven said, Oh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And so he loves alliteration. Dude looks like a lady. I mean, you know, the D and all that. But when he went to go and write the song, you know, I'm sure that it would, you know, that idea was like not even brought out on the table. You know, he just changed it to cruising for the ladies because that's what would be expected of a hetero rock band. But I, I, you know, to as a joke, I said, I don't think Van Halen would put that on the B side of their worst record <laughs> to see if I could get them to, um, to laugh and there was no, it, no. It, that fell on deaf ears. No, no, <laughs> they didn't think that was funny. That was like another insult. <laughs> Well, look, at the time,
1: in the 1980s, glam metal was massive. I mean, you think about bands like Poison and Warrant. They all had the Aquanet hair. That song was very timely for the state of the hairband scene. I mean, if you watched Headbangers Ball in the 1980s on MTV, there was more Aquanet throughout that show where even artists who didn't do the hairband thing Changed their look like Hart started teasing their hair up when they did their version of i10s alone.
0: It was very much the mid to late 80s. That was the look. Right. Exactly. Just like when Ricky Martin came out and he had that frosted blip up the front. Mm -hmm. I mean, which was a very gay look, right? Every straight dude in, in America got their hair cut like that and frosted the front and flipped up. So you couldn't tell who was gay and who wasn't anymore. Because that was sort of like a signature look, you know. So, it's the same thing. When when stars create a fashion, look at when Cindy Lauper came out and, you know, she had this look, you know, with the teased up hair and, and, and it, it was like also teased up, but it was more like a rooster and there was like different colors, purple and green and all pink and all this kind of colors like that. And then uh, Madonna was making a movie called Desperately Seeking Susan yeah. and she like verbatim copied Cindy Lauper's look for the character. And suddenly, everybody would, had that look. Every girl had that look. Thrift shop clothes, lots of bangles and kind of like flea market look and like raggedy ends and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I heard that uh, cindy Lauper went crazy that her look was stolen. Hmm. You know, that was her look, you know, but, you know, it, Madonna became massive and everybody wanted to look like her. So that's what happens. So teased up mullets. I mean, they've been in fashion since, you know, the days of Louis the, the 16th. Right. And they're coming back. Good. I mean, there are a lot of rock bands now that are
1: incorporating that look again. I've seen it. In both rock and in some country artists, still, the mullet is definitely back in country music for sure.
0: Well, everything old is new again. Amen. Because, you know, it's fun, you know.
1: Well, now I want to dive into a couple of songs and projects that you've done in some of the later years that I've gravitated towards. And one of them was back around 2010, I bought Weezer's Hurley album. Not reading the liner notes, I put the album in. I started listening. And when I got to track three, when it was done, I had to play it a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And I instantly fell in love with the track. But then I finished the album, got home, put it in my CD player, opened up the book. And saw that the song was co-written by Desmond Child. And I went, well, that explains why this song resonated with me. That was the one time you worked with Rivers Cuomo and Weezer. And to me, that song is definitely the strongest on Hurley. I'd love to know, because that song to me sounds like a takedown of reality TV shows like Jersey Shore, which was massive at the time. And being from New Jersey, listening to those
0: lyrics, I'm like,
1: I think they're talking about us. I would love to know more about this tune.
0: Well, I don't know. I just love the title Trainwrecks. And, you know, I started, you know, writing the song with Rivers. And uh, he was like egging me on like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, keep going, keep going, keep going. And, you know, the idea is like the couple in the song, they're so dumb. Like they think that they're cool, you know. And so even though everybody thinks that they're trash. And so it has really, really clever lyrics like digging in the couch for some cash. And, you know, their car is wrecked. They can't get in their car. They have no gas for it. Like they're just flat broke, but they can still party. Mm -hmm. So they're like uh, party crashers. So they're just like heard there was a party and they show up and, you know, get free drugs. And it was kind of like uh, Bonnie and Clyde of, you know, trashy people. Yeah, and so that's why I love the song so much because it's like if you really listen to the song and you know it's like you can really imagine those two like a trashy trashy version of Pamela Anderson and, and Tommy Lee. That's mm-hmm. what I had in my mind. Like they're like you know the Duke and Duchess of Windsor compared to the characters in that song. Yes, you know, yes, Pam and Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> Musically speaking, I kind of. Uh, I was thinking about the Rolling Stones a little bit, Hmm. you know? Yeah, a little bit. I was thinking like stones, like, you know, kind of, I don't know, kind of like that kind of jangly, kind of bouncy rock that has a little soul, a little bit of soul music. And I had once read this article that this professor of music history had determined that the most successful songs in pop had an element in them that was R&B. Like when the music didn't have an element of soul, they didn't last as long, they, they didn't stay number one as long, they didn't, you know, and so there was like a quotient of how much soul in a song. And I look at, you know, the success of I Was Made For Loving You, you know, the dance beat with the rock guitars. Then later on with You Give Love A Bad Name and Living On Prayer, the Motown bass, you know, you know, it's very like Jackson 5 in a way. Yes. Yeah. So I kind of always had that in the back of my mind. You know, if there's a soul element, the song is much more listenable and stands the test of time so much better.
1: When I hear the song, I hear that now that you're saying that, especially in the bridge where it's that's just because they're jealous of me and you. Yeah. Like that, uh, the hair on my arm stands up because it's just, it's so musical and it pulls you into the song so much. And that's thats what really I fell in love with that song for.
0: I love those characters. It's like people love to tell us what to do. You know, it's like, you really should get a job or you really should do this, and <laughs> should that. But that's just because they're jealous. <laughs> you know, it's like- how about because you're a train wreck? <laughs> <laughs> but I love that kind of uh, dual reality. Yes, you know, like the listener is in on the joke. So I love that multi-layered
2: for
1: sure. Now, in 2006, you stepped in to write and produce songs for Meatloaf's "Bad Out of Hell" three. The monster is loose. And for those that don't know, *Bad Out of Hell* one and two were a product of Meatloaf and singer songwriter Jim Steinman. So when you're walking into a project that has a decades long legacy because of '77's *Bad Out of Hell* one and '93's *Bad Out of Hell* two, what was it like stepping into create the third chapter of that album story, if you will, but bring your own unique? songwriting perspective to what Meatloaf was bringing to the first two albums.
0: Well, I think that I was very naive and I was like so like blown away that I could do it. But at that time, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman were in a terrible lawsuit over the brand name, Bad Out of Hell, because Jim Steinman wrote a Broadway musical, Bad Out of Hell, and Meatloaf didn't want him to use that as the title. He says, no, those are the names of my albums, you know? it says, yeah, but I actually wrote those words. I wrote those songs. You're not the author of those songs. I am. That's my title. So, it turned into this, you know, like $30 million lawsuit, something. And in the middle of that, he needed to tour and he needed to, like, jumpstart his career. So, they brought me in because I was the closest thing to Jim Steinman. That they could find because I had similar roots, East Coast, uh, Brill Building, Phil Spectory kind of background, and also you know the Bon Jovi, you know kind of Springsteen esque Jersey sound was you know I had been successful with that, and you know i also was you know big fan of Jim Steinman, just Total Eclipse of the Heart is a masterpiece. Yes, and so I jumped at the chance to do it, but I was really kind of used as a kind of pawn, I think Meatloaf thought like, well, I'll make Jim jealous and then he'll want to like settle the lawsuit and then come back and actually produce the real Bad Out of Hell 3. So which, you know, but the album became one of the most expensive albums I've ever made or a all time. It was like $2 million budget. Wow. It took nine months. And they loaded up the album with seven Jim Steinman songs that came from different sources. Like Jim Steinman had a vampire musical, so they grabbed "Land of the Pigs" and stuff like that from that. And you know, Jim Steinman had a solo record, so they took songs from that. And Jim Steinman had written songs for other artists like Celine Dion. You know, it's all coming back to me now. Yep. And they wanted to do that as a duet, and so they're like stabbing Jim Steinman songs on it. And then I wrote some great, amazing songs with John Five and James Michael, Blindness of Bat. I mean, it's like masterpiece unto itself. The Monster is Loose. No, yep. I think Monster is Loose. Well, I'm, I'm confusing the co writers, but uh, Marty Frederickson, Diane Warren contributed a wonderful ballad. And I worked with Holly Knight. And I think we were coming up with like new direction, a fresh new direction where if you listen to those songs, the other songs were just overblown, like recreations of like Steinman's style. But, you know, in the end they settled. And then I think Loaf had a case of like feeling very guilty that he had proceeded to move forward with bed out of hell three uh, without Jim. So he has, you know, before he passed away, he actually had the album pulled off of Spotify in the U.S. only because he doesn't control the the global, the you know, worldwide version of that album. So, it's everywhere in the world except for the U.S., which is the only part of it that he controlled. And, you know, he m- ended up making his last record with Jim Steinman, which maybe those were the, like, songs that Jim wanted to save for Bad Out of Hell 3. And so I don't remember the title of it. I mean, it was like larger than both of us or something like that. And the, both of them are on the cover, like the backs of them. And they're like facing hell and damnation, like this big, like whirlpool of fire and brimstone and all this kind of stuff. Cause uh, you know, those bad out of hell covers all, always had that kind of imagery. Yep. And uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm very sorry that he passed away and, um, you know, I had hoped that I could, you know, get him to understand that while I was making Bad At l 3, on the Jim Steinman songs, I was consulting with Jim behind the scenes. You know, I was sending him the rough mixes, getting his opinion. He never, like, said I was doing anything wrong. He just always said, oh, sounds fantastic. You're, you're doing a great job. So, it was blessed by Jim Steinman, you know, because he cared. And so, I never got to tell me about that aspect. And then I was very shocked to hear that he, he, in an interview with Raleigh or something he said, well, bad out of hell three doesn't exist. There's only bad out of hell one and bad out of hell two. It doesn't exist. Wow. You know, so it was very mean to say, because I had put nine months of my life on hold with high overhead of my own. And then in the end, he didn't pay me my back end, which is $65,000. And I, you know, it's like, that was like a month's worth of my expenses and I had, I had little toddlers that I never saw, you know, my husband and I, and I had twin sons and they were like three and four and five years old around that time and I never got to see them for those nine months because I'd work really late, they'd be asleep, I'd wake up late, they'd be gone to school and I worked through weekends to bring the album in on time for his tour and I wasn't appreciated for it so it really hurt my feelings and it's like one of those things it's like you wish that everything was like tied up in a neat little bow but that piece is like raggedy shreds that never got fixed. It's all in my book, live it out of prayer, big songs, big life, big problems too. (laughs)
1: I was going to say, from a fan perspective, I just want you to know that there are three Bad Out of Hell albums. I love the work that you did on volume three. And I also read a tidbit that you played Slipknot for the band in order to put the mindset of what you were looking to do musically in some of
0: the songs. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Well, I think in The Monster is Loose, I mean, what I loved about Slipknot was this like kind of like short little things. And I think like to the- you know, they kind of like there was space between the notes, and yes. I think they would almost be like dead space. Like, it wasn't like you heard amps and reverbs and things spilling over. It was like very tight, and I just loved Slipknot, and I thought, well, that would be a great direction to put him into because it would get radio play on rock radio, on active rock, and and all of that, and so. That's why I was kind of guiding it away from that, you know, pompous, braggadocious Broadway style. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping to bring him into the here and now instead of just throw back in the past. But then, you know, I had like seven songs, and then they made me cut another seven songs. It was like making a double album. And of those songs, you could hardly ever like copy and paste. You had to, every piece of it had to be recorded separately. You know, like of its own. Yes. And some of these songs were six, seven minutes long. So, a 14 song album with songs that were seven minutes long, that's almost like a triple album. So, that's why it costs so much because every demon choir, orchestras, you know, 60 piece orchestras, I mean, it was so much went into it. I mean, I think it's a fantastic journey. And I, you know, maybe your listeners could find some way. To hear it, it really is very fulfilling to hear it. And I got a chance to speak with Pearl, a day uh, Meatloaf's daughter, this year. I reached out to her, and she was so nice. And you know, I gave my condolences, and it was like, wow, you know, it's such a shame because he was really a national monument unto himself. You know, he was like bigger than life. And it's it's a big, huge loss to the world that he has gone. I agree.
1: Now, while we've been talking about so many bands tonight, we've brought them up a couple of times, but I know that my weekly mixtape listeners would be pissed if we don't talk a little bit about Kiss tonight. And you mentioned earlier the song I Was Made For Loving You, which at the time was a departure for the band, bringing disco into the into the band's sound.
0: Like uh, uh, no, you said, the wrong word. It wasn't disco. Really, it was Motown. Motown. It was Motown. Okay, it was dance beat, dance beat with heavy rock guitars. No disco. All right. It was not disco. You know that's how we were pegged by you know the haters of Kiss, and so you know it didn't help that Gene was negative about the song. He didn't think he thought it was off brand, you know, for Kiss to come up with something like that. But the fact is that it's their biggest. International hit of all time. And it gets licensed over and over, time and time again. One of my biggest money makers ever. And, you know, that song brought me together with Paul. Uh, That was the second song we wrote. First song we wrote was called The Fight. We co wrote that with David Landau, our guitarist from Desmond Child and Rouge. And I said, okay, well, let's write a song, you know, for your project. And he was like, looking at me like, you don't know G. You know, <laughs> it, You know, he already was imagining whatever we came up with, Gene would reject. And so, we wrote the song and it was magic in the studio with the producer Vinnie Poncia, who's also credited as a, as a co-writer. I'm not quite sure what he brought to it, but he brought something <laughs> and uh, made it a hit. And so, for that, I'm forever grateful. And then, Paul, it was like one of those things, like he was not encouraged to keep writing with me, and but then he did. And we wrote Heavens on Fire, which was another hit for them. Yes. Now, with the makeup off. And then we wrote, you know, Who Wants to Be Lonely? I mean, I love that song. And being a big fan of the Crazy Nights album, you have to talk about Reason to Live. Reason to Live. You know, everybody's got a reason to live because I was trying to bring into it the kind of uh, more like soulful storylines. That I was kind of working on with other bands, you know, kind of everybody's got a reason to live, you know, just like, just that that idea, that concept. And I think that that song showed, you know, how varied Kiss can be. Yeah. I mean, they had a huge hit with Beth. I mean, where did that come from? I know it was, you know, the other guy's song, but they went with it and it was like huge, huge hit. I mean, to this day, whenever anybody plays a song, you want to listen to it. Yep. You know, it, it pulls on the heartstrings. And I went to see Kiss's last performance at Madison Square Garden last month. Yeah. It was December 2nd. And um, I went with my husband and our son Nero because our son Roman was in Europe. He had spent a semester in Europe, so he didn't get to go. And with our you know, production manager, Brian Coleman, and it was just so emotional to see them perform their last show. I mean, the way that Paul looked up, you know, where we were like sitting just like, it was like, I mean, my heart was breaking. And they also, in that show, they showed how versatile they are. They had so many musical moments and all that, like, in harmony guitar work you know, I mean, virtuoso.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, the way that Paul's character is like, in a way, like Alice Cooper's, you know, it's like, that's not Paul. That's his character, Kiss, that's Starchild, right? And, you know, he was like, swagging it up, you know, like never before. And, you know, it was just so, so sweet. And they'll be forever because I'm sure that they'll be Morphed into holograms and into, you know, you'll go to a kiss show and you'll feel like they're there. Yeah, through the avatars. Uh huh. I saw the ABBA show in London twice. The second time I went, actually had tears because when they sing that song, The Winter Takes It All, and you know that that's about them breaking up, you know, and what they went through, um, I mean, emotionally, The Winter Takes It All was a very bitter divorce. And it was just so. Emotional, how they like rendered it on the stage with these avatars. Like you know, the avatars were like you could see every pore in their skin. You could see crooked little teeth. You could see a little scar. You could see wow. you know straight hairs. They were so realistic, and you could see their eyes well up with with tears. And you know, it was just. I think it's great. You know, some people think it's a bad thing. I don't. It's like going to see a movie. Yep. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean. You expect that to be real? No. <laughs> it's it's entertainment. You know, and you know, KISS has always been very theatrical anyway. And those avatars they created, they created avatars before there were avatars. You know, large, you know, platform shoes bigger than yep. life, big yep. hair. I mean, between the hair and the platform shoes, they were like over seven feet tall, you know, these creatures. And You know, I don't see any reason – I mean, there's so much creativity that now they can get into that they can do in person. You know, they could make somebody, like, do a spin and then disappear in a puff of smoke and then show up in a new costume, like, in seconds later. And I think it's, like, a great thing because they'll be able to preserve their legacy forever. And the people – From the future, you know, we'll want to see it the way we love to hear Mozart. Hundreds of years into the future. Why not? Well, I think it would be safe to say,
1: looking at the list of songs we've touched on in this past hour, that hundreds of years from now, people will still be talking about the songs that Desmond Child has written. With that in mind, are there any songs that you wrote or a single song that you wrote that has a deep personal meaning to you. Not talking about if the song is a hit or what other people think of the song. I'm talking about a song that has a deep personal connection to you.
0: Well, one of my favorite songs of all time is a song called Weird that I wrote with those three kids from Hanson. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac was 16, Taylor was 14, and Zach was nine years old. When I told Diane Warren that I was going to write with a, a nine-year-old, she said, Desmond, you've reached your lowest low. But this is before Umbop came out, right? Ah, okay, So yep. this song, Weird, made it out to that record. And uh, after they sold 6 Million Records, she called me for their number. I guess she hit her lowest <laughs> low, right? I mean, it's like, it, that song is magic. And to me, it's about growing up you know, poor, growing up Latino, growing up gay, you know, being an outcast, feeling like I didn't fit in, I didn't get invited to the cool parties and, and all of that. Now I do, by my classmates, <laughs> you know, we had our 50th anniversary of class of 72. And uh, now they're inviting me and they say, oh, well, you were so cool then, it's like, then why didn't you invite me to, to like the cool parties that you guys were having, you know? And so, that song being weird. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. And I sing it sometimes in, you know, when I do like these acoustic sets and all that. And it has a beautiful bridge, you know, like it really reminds me of my idols, Burt Backrack and Hal David, you know, sitting on the side waiting for a sign, hoping that my luck will change. Reaching for a hand that'll understand someone who feels the same. When you live in a cookie-cutter world, being different is a sin. So you don't stand down and you don't fit in weird. I mean, that's so profound.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Desmond... This has been an absolute honor. I hope we could chat again sometime down the road because I haven't even scratched the surface of Desmond Child songs that I would love to know more about. But I thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape.
0: Well, invite me again. You know, when my audiobook comes out, I'll be promoting my audiobook in a few months. You know, so yes, please um, invite your fans and your tribe to follow me at desmond.child on Instagram. And then all the news that's fit to print is in there. And I tell a lot of stories and you know, I'm on there like every day. My husband's like, get off the phone. You know, it's (laughs) like, I'm there like answering questions and everything. I just love it. It's like, I have a million point two best friends. That's how I look at it. Cause I had a lonely childhood. So now I have a million point two friends. That's, That's not enough. (laughs) you know <laughs> you know well
1: i am certainly one of them and this has been an absolute pleasure sir thank you for the time tonight
0: thank you thank you
1: and remember, you can head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to hear a playlist of all the songs we've discussed in tonight's episode, as well as check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash My Mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time...